Uh, how was your drive? Look, a new background. I actually like the solid. I thought about painting this wall black when I first moved in here, but I just didn't feel like. This is the background painting. you like, the, the bear blue? Yeah, kind of. Uh, I think I'm going to spend some money and get a new light because I hate my setup. And I don't know what I'm going to do with this backdrop yet. I may not put the pictures back up like I used to, but I'm going to do something uh, tricky. Just do a green screen and then you can do everything you want. I was thinking about doing a green screen and then just doing like, you know, I can do continuously changing advertisements or I can do all sorts of just obnoxious stuff. Uh, yeah, just do, just find a way to make Google AdWords appear in your background. No, uh, those, well, you know uh, me, I wouldn't advertise so much as just say things that I think are, you know, on my mind, like, you know, quotes of the day or something like that. I might just okay. do a green screen. Here's, here's my, I'm going to ask you a, 30, a question. You got 30 seconds to answer it since we're not talking the future, but we are because you and I have been going back and forth on this. What is your take on the idea of cell phones and or chips? The idea of being able to content, con contact trace individuals so that if I was tested positive for COVID, the government would be able to see who I ran into over the last 10 days. Uh, I think it's, what I say on the internet? It's straight out of Orwell. Uh, I think not enough people have read 1984. I also think it's inevitable. So... If you've also read 1984, the premise is don't bother fighting. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, they're going to track us. They're going to, they're going to, they're already starting to do things like um, uh, take your temperature before you enter public places. I mean, not anywhere I've been, but I know it's coming. And so, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, they're going to get your biometrics and they are going to misuse it and, Anybody who's listening to this, if you're not upset every time you go through the TSA, then you don't understand how bad, you don't understand the, da the damage of totalitarianism. Uh, and so they'll, they, people will welcome it because it'll seem useful. It'll seem reasonable. Yeah, and right now I, I got demonized yesterday for saying that I thought that that was like, I don't want that app. Well, what do you care? I mean, look, if you No, I, I, I'm not saying it offended me. I'm saying like it was funny to me that it was like, how dare you not be okay with this if it might save a life? And I was like, oh, you got demonized. Didn't you say that on a thread that I started? Yeah, yeah. That, I was trying. I was, yeah. I was jumping into your honor and then you just left me hanging. It was great. Let me tell you something. Let me tell no, you something. I'm, just, I'm, joking. This. I'm joking. I'm joking. Let me tell you something while we're on this. I'm going to tell everybody my style. Ready? This is the key to social media. And the real, your instinct, right? Your petty natural instinct is to get the last word on things when you argue on the internet you should always let the other person get the last word if i ever think if you go back and forth one two th by the third time i can tell i'm like no i'm done i'm done first you can have the last word because then you're sitting around waiting for me to respond while i'm yeah. moving on with my life yeah which is which is exactly why if you go down far enough after i made a few points i just ended it with like you know hey obviously we're not going to agree on this have a great day or i yes. hope I, I hope you have the best or something and then there were a few comments after that i never whatever um yeah just, anyway I, it's all funny i'm here to instigate not, not <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's entertaining but that being said today's guest because we normally talk about this is scott lewis with spartan investments who uh, I met when he came and spoke to our mastermind group. You're listening to the Military Millionaire Podcast, a show about real estate investing for the working class. Stay tuned as we explore ways to help you improve your finances, build wealth through real estate, and become a person that is worth knowing. What's up, guys? 
guys. Today I wanted to stop and sponsor my own podcast by myself, which is a little cheesy, to tell you about the course that I'm launching called From Zero to One, Real Estate Investing for Beginners. Now this is not a course to help you get rich fast. This is not a course to promise you to make a bajillion dollars, but this is the course that will help you get from zero rental properties to one rental property. It is designed to get you through your first purchase. Everything you need to know to get you through that step with support from myself, obviously via email and whatever, so that we can talk and I can help answer some of those questions for you. And it is extremely affordable right now because I'm launching it for only 97 bucks, which given the amount of content in there and the testimonials I got from the people who tested it beforehand, I am super on the low end for that price, but I'm going to probably have to bump it up in a little while but for now to test the waters and see exactly how many people I'm able to help with this I want it to be extremely affordable because I want to help service members and veterans get their feet in the water so if you are interested in learning about rental properties and you just want to learn how to get your first one and then there are some bonus episodes in there to help you advance past that but if you really just want to know everything you need to know to buy your first property without screwing yourself over this is the course for you. Go ahead and check it out. The link will be down below in the show notes and back to your episode. Hey, what's up everybody? It's Dave and Alex from the Military Millionaire Podcast. Look at that. I didn't even introduce you as a co-host. You're getting more official every time. And we've got Scott Lewis today, who is the CEO of Spartan Investments. He's an army veteran, been in for 13 years in the reserves currently. And uh, did some active duty time in there as well. And Scott and I met when he came and spoke to the mastermind group that I host with Stu and I was impressed and reached out to him right after the uh, speaking and said, Hey, I'd love to get you on the podcast. And now that none of us have day jobs anymore um, and we're all stuck inside, it, it just seems like the world is coming together for scheduling podcasts. So Scott, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate you uh, inviting me on the show, and I'm uh, looking forward to chatting. Absolutely. Why don't you uh, like give the audience a little bit of your background and tell a bit of your story? Yeah, so I was kind of late to the military. I was 27 when I went in, and I went in the, uh, the Army through officer candidate school and OCS route, and the Army is called 09 Sierra. If you've got a college degree, you can go to basic and then go to OCS after that, and then then your story is the same as everybody else's, but... Military was always something I'd wanted to do, but I got a pretty good gig um, out of college. And I'm a big integrity guy, and there was some integrity stuff that was going on at the top levels of the company that I didn't really like. So I started to look for another job and at business school and kind of figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I was 26 when I started looking, and I was like, you know what? Screw it. Let's sell everything I own, uh, abandon a condo in downtown Chicago and join the military. That sounds like a fantastic idea. I've, I've always wanted to take an 80% pay cut. Um, and, and and luckily, I didn't take a haircut. That that was not a big change for me um, at the time. So that was good. <laughs> but um, I, so I kind of came to the military late. Um, I went in with the specific kind of thought of to serve my country and get some leadership experience and get some leadership education and training and then, and then come back out. Um, I really didn't even have any uh, designed to do the reserves or national guards. I've done both, but I've kind of found that that's a little bit better for me than, than active duty. Active duty was a, a little bit too much, uh, all the time for me, but I really have enjoyed my time in the, the army reserves and army national guard. And I've gotten to learn, you know, additional army stuff if I've, as I've moved up in rank that are, that's been very, very, very relevant for what I'm doing out here in the civilian world. And 
when I got off of active duty, I went and I worked for the government for a while. That was a complete waste of my life. Um, so then I didn't really, I didn't enjoy that. Um, I, I didn't fit in really well. So then that's what kind of prompted me to start Spartan because I was basically unemployable by everybody else. I love this story. <laughs> I love this story. So, Look, I, I feel very similar because I've been a misfit in the, you know, the what you're supposed to do type of world, you know, W2 jobs, military, corporate America, you know, I've always been the a misfit, which sounds similar to yours. You're just like, I just don't fit in. It's not a good fit. I'm going to go up and do my own thing. So what was the initial Spartan? How did you start it? Yeah, so I was working for the government at the time, and, and misfit is a great way to, 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 to put it. Um, yeah, I didn't like the government. The government didn't like me. Um, but I had, you know, with, with, with some of us that have had federal jobs before, there can often be time uh, in your day, uh, depending on where you're working, um, <laughs> as to pursue other uh, options. And I, and I had that time. So I'd been in real estate. I, I was a framer in high school and college. That's how I got money. So I kind of had the, the real estate from the built environment kind of perspective, not the investment perspective um, prior. And I, I really enjoyed just kind of being out there and I enjoyed real estate and building homes. So I was like, eh, let me try this flipping thing. And there was a house. Um, I was living in DC at the time in, an, in a neighborhood that was kind of gentrifying. And I did a big renovation on my home in DC. They're called pop-ups when you tear the roof off and you add a, another story on top of it to get that additional square footage. So my wife and I did a pop-up on our house and then the house in between mine and, and my would-be business partner a couple of years later was this just really ramshackle row house that was really bad news bears. And my wife was like, hey, you need to do something about that. What the hell do you want me to do? <laughs> like, so at the time, I didn't know we were doing it, but we started a direct mail campaign because this was really, this was probably 2010. So bigger pockets really wasn't out there and wholesaling and flipping. It was there, but it certainly wasn't mainstream like it is now. Like you weren't seeing it on HGTV and stuff. Well, 2010, everybody was still reeling about real estate too. So it wasn't, you couldn't go to your friends and be like, I'm going to do real estate and get a bunch of except people excited because they were still really bearish about the economy and real estate in general. So, okay. That was a really good time to buy. We did really well on both those properties, my own. And, and, and usually if your friends, if your friends think you're crazy, you might be onto something. And they thought all my friends thought we were just absolutely bananas for buying where we were buying. When we, when we moved into that neighborhood, there was housing projects. There still was housing projects, but the, the, the demographics were definitely low income, um, African-American, your, your quintessential DC kind of uh, gentrifying neighborhood uh, demographics. And when we left uh, six years later, it was like 25 year old, like Caucasian women running around with strollers. It moved incredibly fast in that neighborhood, incredibly fast. Um, but we figured out how to get that house. And it was funny, I, I scraped together and this is, you know, for folks that have a TSP, um, you know, the old adage is never take a loan against your TSP. Well, don't take a loan against your TSP to buy a boat, but take a loan against your TSP to do your first real estate deal. So long as you have a, a decent uh, probability of it going well. And for this one, that that's, I didn't have any money at the time. Um, so took 50,000 bucks out of my TSP, uh, asked my father-in-law for 50,000 bucks at dinner one night. Um, and that's all I could scrape together was a hundred grand called. I, I, had, I had spoken with the woman a couple of times and she had always said, um, um, or I'm sorry, I had sent her a couple of letters, had spoken to her mom. Um, and then finally I called and her mom answered. I'm like, Hey, let, 
let Davida know I, I, I can pay $100,000 for the house. It's all the money I can get together and you know, I'm willing to buy it. And they called me back and this is where integrity really goes. They're like, are you sure you want to pay $50,000 for that house or $100,000 for the house? They're like, that seems like a lot. I'm like, well, I think that's what it's worth and that's what I have and that's my offer. And they're like, okay, we'll take it. The day I signed the contract, our real estate agent offered us 200,000 for the paper. Um, it was valued at like 375. Um, and that was just like, we, we didn't know that when we, when we bought it, I was just a hundred thousand dollars is what I could scrape together between me and my father-in-law to do that deal. And one of my other buddies threw some money in as well. Shh, wait, Alex, I, just, I have something I to say make, first. I just want to make sure talking. we all remember this doesn't intend. So anybody who hears this and tries to go out and do it now is going to have a much more difficult time. <laughs> yeah. This So this is, so this one was 2012, not much better. I bought my house in 2010 and my partner bought his in 09, but this was 2012, but, but still, it was still pretty low. So Alex missed the key part of this whole story. And I'm going to just point it out as if Alex missed it because he always gets all the good questions. But to me, the main point of this entire thing is you had no intention of buying that freaking house. This whole thing started with your wife saying, that house sucks, fix it. And I think that's a huge piece of, of th what entrepreneurs do more so than necessarily go and look for opportunities, which is great, but solving problems. And so you got into this investment because you were like, that, that thing's an eyesore. Like, I, that thing sucks. We got to do something about that was kind of the mentality more than like, ooh, I read this book and I heard I can make a million dollars through this. But it turned into like, exactly what the laws of the universe say if you solve a problem like anyway so I like but to be that. clear the problem wasn't the eyesore the problem was the wife <laughs> yeah <laughs> true true but, but it's, it's funny there was another house we between my partner and i on that street on l street southeast in dc we bought and rehabbed four row homes on that that street two of them that we lived in the one that was right in between us and then there was another one down the street that was also condemned that um, just through a chance meeting, we, we actually found the, the attorney that was working with the lawyer. And, you know, this is, I, I can segue into a really kind of, you know, a, a key point here for folks just getting into it. It's, it's a little bit like, again, I, I'm, I'm looking backwards on this, but that particular property, it was a, just, a, it was a row home. And there was a lot of row homes on the street that were single family. These in particular started out as two unit duplexes, a top and a bottom unit, but the zoning allowed for um, multiple units there. It was called R5 Bravo at the time. They've since done some um, uh, rezoning and stuff down there, but it was literally, there was, a, there was an alley in the back of the street and there was literally, that's, that was the line for the zoning code. So L Street, K Street, right? They're right next to each other. K Street, you couldn't do four condos. L Street, you could. So, you know, for those folks that are getting started, like one of the key things I can say, especially on the residential side of the house, the commercial side and eh, not so much, but the residential side, if you know the zoning and you understand zoning and you understand how to leverage zoning where other folks don't, you're going to be on different battlefields. So it was between us and one other buyer, um, for that particular property. That buyer was from out of state. They didn't know the zoning code. So they were, they were negotiating as if it was a single family home. We were negotiating as if it was a four unit condo. The economics are a little bit different between those two. We had set our maximum price that we could pay for that, given all the financials at 750000 
when our, when the attorney called, he's like, Hey man, I've got another offer in it's for four fifteen. If you guys can do four fifty, it's yours. I literally about soiled my pants in the chair. I mean, we had $300,000 because we were playing a different game. This guy was going to just renovate it into a single family home in which he could sell it for about 700,000. We were renovating it into two condos, which at the end of the day, we sold for 2.3 million. So just like for those four condos, right? So, so the, 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 the difference there was we, we had, we knew just that underlying zoning code and that's how we won on that particular project. That's the best 20 grand anybody spent. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that increase. Yeah. Good for you. Wow. That's, that's huge. And you're absolutely correct. Just understanding how to utilize the laws that are already in place. It's, it, I mean, it, now you were boots on the ground in DC, right? We were. So that was, we were kicking rocks in those neighborhoods. You know, like, just like any of us that, you know, you go overseas, you start kicking rocks on the neighborhoods over and over and over again. You really learn them. When we first started, um, with Ryan and I, it was really kind of just home flipping. That's what we were doing. Um, we would only invest in four zip codes inside of DC because we lived it. We knew it. We were kicking rocks on it every day there, there. We knew the streets, we knew the zoning code. We knew exactly what we could offer because, you know, especially if you're in the, the single family, especially now there's so much competition for this stuff out there. Right. If, if you're doing a direct mailing campaign, it's no different for us in storage right now. We, we now mainly focus on self-storage and we do direct mailing campaigns, no different than the residential guys do. Um, what with the residential, it's, it's really a first mover's advantage. When that, when that homeowner calls you and they're like, well, what can you pay for my house? Man, they got 10 other letters that are right behind them. So if you've got to hesitate and you can't pull the trigger right away, you're going to miss that opportunity because the guy behind you can so that's, you know, uh, I guess another thing is when you should have some sort of tracking me mechanism and it doesn't have to be some snazzy like CRM system. It can be, a, it, we used Excel sheets when we first started and that was even before Podio really kind of got like, uh, got out there in the, the, the house flipping space and like we could look up a particular property on that spreadsheet that we had sent a letter for and it was max offer was already listed in that spreadsheet because we'd already done the analysis so we took a very, very targeted approach. Some guys are sending out a hundred thousand letters a month. We were sending out like 10, but it was 10 properties that no matter what we would buy, if they called us, we were ready. Like we were over there in, in minutes and we knew we had an offer right in front of them and we knew we could buy it. And that's yeah, that's a big thing in this business. Uh, people, beginners have a little bit of an uphill climb because, you know, I, I tell people it's se you're, you're separated by those who know you can close and those, yeah. and those who don't, uh, or, and those who don't close. And so if you could just show up, and say, I'm confident that I can close. And then you, God forbid you develop a track record for it. Um, you get a big advantage just by saying, I can show up, I can write the check and, and, and move forward with it. Uh, so that's, that's good to hear you say that. And it's the same way in commercial. Um, it's a vanity metric, but right now Spartan is hundred percent contract to close on every commercial deal we've done anywhere from, you know, a million dollars up to 10 million. And, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a vanity metric that I don't really care about. Neither does my partner. Our acquisitions guys really do. But it's one of those things that you, you really shouldn't be writing a contract on something that you can't buy. Um, so long as everything comes through on the due diligence side, on our, on our world, there's a couple different things. There's feasibility and due diligence. And I'm, I guess we'll just kind of naturally wander into the, the differentiator between the two. 
for every property that you're looking at, whether it's a single family rental that you're going to buy and rent out, or it's some commercial deal that you're looking at or whatever, or a house with whatever you're doing, you should determine if whatever your business plan is for that particular property is feasible. That's the feasibility side of the house. The due diligence side of the house is like doing your inspections, doing your, your walkthrough. If it's, if it's a commercial facility or a multifamily, like you're checking leases and estoppel stuff, that's the due diligence side. But by the time you get to due diligence, so long as everything is close to what the seller says, you should be ready to buy that. You shouldn't get in, you shouldn't write a contract. At least this is our opinion. So a lot of folks are doing this, but you really shouldn't write a contract if you don't even know what you want is feasible. You can at least get a week or two from the seller to lock it up in an LOI, a letter of intent or letter of interest, whatever, whatever, how it's written in the articles that you're reading about to get a couple of weeks where it's like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll do this handshake agreement and you can determine whether it's feasible or not. They're usually very, very short timelines. We usually try to keep it to 10 business days, two weeks to determine if it's feasible. And then we move to contract. Otherwise, like don't move to contract. Like that gets people all spun up. It gets them really excited. They start spending the money in their head. And then, and then if you, and then if it fails because of you, because your business plan doesn't work, that, that to us is just, uh, just bad news bears. We don't like to do that. So for us, if we're going to contract, as long as you said, as long as it's what it is, as long as the financials line up, as long as it's not a hot mess um, from a, a physical inspection point or an environmental inspection point, we're going to buy the thing. Yeah. I like that. I think that's valid because I, I agree with you that a lot of people will, I mean, I, I see, I guess, both sides of the coin. Like I completely understand the idea of, you know, writing the offer if it goes under contract, like, you know, there's all the due diligence there for the safety net, but that's what it's there for is a safety net. But as long as what you originally thought is accurate, absolutely. I, I think it it's going to hurt you more almost if you don't go through with it and you earn a reputation for breaking contracts in town. That could be real, real dangerous. It, it'll, if, if especially if you're in the commercial world and you're going through brokers, it'll crush you. Um, if you're the guy that like gets them, everybody spun up because brokers, like when that contract comes in, like that, that's, that's really, that's their bread and butter. Right. So for the broker side of the house, you better be a team that can close. And, you know, for us, for anybody that's listening to this, at, especially anybody that's a green or blue suitor or tan suitor, like you've been trained, especially like you guys, like the, the Marines, they don't do much right. But one of the things you guys do have <laughs> is adapt, improvise, and overcome. And man, I stole that like fair square. Like you guys have really squared away uniforms and a really good mindset. Um, your frontal attack. is yeah, the I nicest insult I've ever heard. Yeah, I know. <laughs> the, the frontal assault, I, like on every, every piece of terrain, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. But, but I tell you what, you guys look sharp and your attitudes are fantastic. The, the adapt, improvise, and overcome are make, are, are, is what make Marines Marines, at least, from a, at least from an Army guy's perspective. And every force should adopt that um, because that's really what it's about. So anybody that's listening to this, you should be able to adapt, improvise, and overcome challenges inside the due diligence process by being really creative. And sometimes it will fail. Sometimes you'll get a seller that's just like, yeah, man, not, not interested. Like, that, take it or leave it. That's probably not a seller that you want to deal with because there's probably some skeletons in the closet that are going to kind of come out and punch you in the head later on. It's funny you say that because it is super, super jaded me in a way uh, that that mentality. And this is something I 
I, I subconsciously judge people and I have to catch myself. But like, if I'm talking to someone and they ask, like, if it's a, like a super, super, super simple question that they could answer themselves with, you know, Google and they're like calling me to bug me about it. Like subconsciously, I'm always judging, like, can you not figure things out on your own? Like I'm the guy who will very quickly respond like, yeah, hang on, let me Google it for you. Like, here's your answer you know so i think that that's i mean a huge piece to success the literally the entire way that i built everything and anything that i do is by like i don't know how to do that let me go watch a youtube video on that let me go let me go figure that out like uh anyway so super digress how did you go from yeah i'll buy the ugly house next door to i'm gonna raise you know tens of millions of dollars and buy commercial properties so we, we realized that we hated the residential space. It just wasn't really for us. There's a, lot, there's a lot of good stuff in it. A lot of people are making lots of money in it. It just wasn't really for us. It, just, it was not our skill set. Um, and we wanted to get into cash flowing properties. And, and quite frankly, I hate people. So I didn't want to have to deal with multifamily. Um, Speaking so, about you, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, honestly, that, that's what, that was really what was, what was driving us. And, you know, I kind of have a, kind of a belief that if I provide you something and we contractually agree that if I provide you something, you're going to, you're going to pay for that. I don't want the government to step in and stop me from, from collecting what is rightfully mine because of our agreement. So that, and I'm referencing really a bit as, as we're seeing right now with the coronavirus, you know, governments are stepping in and stopping landlords from, um, you know, collecting rent and, or evicting. And now, now, of course, there should be some protections and some landlords would do the wrong thing here, but most would do the right thing. Yeah. What, the, what the government isn't doing is they're not stopping in, they're not stand, stop, or stepping in and stopping banks from taking those multifamily properties from the owners. When, when, so they're only protecting the, the residents, not the owners, when the owners could be in a hurt locker as well. Yeah. And some owners are, are, are green suitors that own a fourplex or an eightplex or a sixteenplex? They're not. They're not Blackstone. I have a tenant in my ten unit right now who has not paid rent since January, and we were three or four days away from the eviction process finalizing when the moratorium went up. And now, dude is just because of the coronavirus. Even though he wasn't paying before that, and I know that's like a super anomaly, but it's just funny because yeah. it's like, it's like, yeah, but, but he's not affected by coronavirus he's right. social security and still getting paid and choosing not to pay me like get rid of you know so uh but that, that that's that's the, my only mistake or error on all this but not error but it's my only missed payment but that was one of the things that really kind of drove us to storage is uh you know how much the government gives a shit about your old aunt like ethel's like flower print rocking chair that you've got stored in there nothing um, so, you know, in, in addition to just being really easy to operate and really easy to maintain, like, a you know, an angry tenant can't punch holes in a concrete storage unit wall. Like, I mean, if you want to take a sledgehammer to, it, I mean, more power to you, you're going to be really huffing and puffing when you're dead. And then there's nothing behind it for you to get. Right. And it's going to be on camera. Yeah. And it would be on camera. So it, it's, it's one of those, that was really pushed us to storage. But to answer your question, we had made the decision to go to commercial, um, you know, and to raise millions and millions of dollars. We did do some raises for the residential side of the house. So we had, we kind of had started to cut our teeth and we went to a syndication class and I recommend anybody, anybody that's going to be taking money from somebody else, they should find a syndication class. Just one of those weekend things. Um, Ryan and I went to the real estate radio guys, secrets of successful syndication in Dallas. 
um, we enjoyed that. It was like 1700 bucks and this was in 2016 or something like that. Really good. Gave us kind of gave us the, the, the knowledge that we needed to know that we didn't know shit and we needed to get an attorney. <laughs> so that's basically what it is. Before you go to that class, you're like, Oh, I think I can do this. And then you go to that class you're like, Nope, need an attorney. Right. <laughs> um, just make sure you get a good attorney and, and, um, I can recommend one to have on here. That's a former Lieutenant Colonel. He does all of our sec offerings for us. He'd be a great guest for you to have on would, here. So we can, I would love that. Let's talk afterwards. Yeah. We'll circle back. Um, but, Let's uh, keep talking sure you- so Alex can keep pretending he has a question to ask. <laughs> I see him; he's trying so hard over there. Um, but but really, make sure that like that's the that's the first thing that to, to as far as raising money. But that's really you know I mean commercial. It's it's you know there's uh, Russell Gray on the Real Estate Radio guys had a had a comment or a quote in one of his shows that you know if you have a hundred thousand dollar loan, it's your problem. If you have a ten million dollar loan, it's the bank's problem. As a banker, I can confirm that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, but, but to be fair, it also the, the, there's a nuance there that I mean, not to go into a, a, a hole about that, but there's a nuance there about uh, where the liability lies. So if you have a hundred thousand dollar loan and it's a Fannie Mae mortgage, then, yeah, I mean, it's back. It's kind of your problem. But if it's a ten million dollar loan and it's on the commercial local banks uh, balance sheet, then they really they're in the, your partners. Yep. Then they really need you to pay. Yep. So the, the workouts are a lot easier on that side of the house. If something gets in and in, in versus the, the bank just coming in foreclosing, they don't, they don't want that thing. Most, most banks don't want to operate uh, commercial assets. So they'll, they'll work it out with you. You think having hey, a, Scott- a tenant in a crappy apartment, trash your house, wait till a syndicator trashes the entire building. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> here, here you go, bank. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash militarymillionaire. Now, why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. I listen to Audible every single day on my commute to and from work. Now, to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash militarymillionaire. Scott, I have three questions for you regarding um, storage. Versus uh, multifamily. Yep. One, uh, part of the reason why I started with rentals is I didn't want employees. You said you hated people. I don't know if you said hated, but you don't like them. Exactly. Uh, but you have to have employees for uh, self-storage. The second one I wanted to ask is uh, self-storage, as far as I know, and I could be totally generalizing here, but it does good in up and, it does good in, in up and down markets. Mm-hmm. And then the third question I had was, uh, and I don't know if this is systemic nationally, but when I was in Las Vegas, I noticed something that I had never noticed before over the last few years, which is um, big box franchise uh, self-storage uh, companies are popping up more and more. And do you, do you notice that? Is it big enough to be a, comp- a competitor or is that just some, some kind of fluke? So I'll start with the last question and work backwards. So there's, there's five REITs out there, real estate investment trusts that are publicly traded co- uh, companies for storage. Um, two of them that are really well known are public. Those are the ones with the orange doors you see all over the, they were the first ones that started in the late seventies in Texas. You got extra space out of Utah. That's the green doors. Those are your two behemoths. And then you got cube smart and store store quest, um, are the next two. And then the national storage affiliate affiliates, NSA are, are this kind of amalgamation of regional owners that kind of partnered up to, uh, release the stock. Those are your five. And then you got some regionals that are around. So kind of more to your point, storage has kind of seen uh, a, a kind of a heyday over the last, I'll call it 
five years, maybe 2015 to now, because of your second question on how well it did through 0809. You know, storage kind of goes um, you know, up and down, but not, not very much because, you know, in good times, people are buying too much shit and they need a place to put it. In bad times, people lose that shit um, and they need some place to put it. So it, it's really, you know, it's, it's, it's called a recession resistant asset class. Like ev everything takes a hit. So far we've done okay, but the, the, the shoe is probably going to drop for us to like, like maybe not as bad as retail or hotels or, or um, multi multifamily because there's no protections out there for storage. But, but we're, we're probably going to see some softening on the economic uh, occupancy side of the house. But I mean, storage is pretty versatile. Most, of the, most folks think storage, they think of like people with their old junk. And there's a lot of that. Don't get me wrong. But about 20% of our portfolio is businesses leveraging storage space versus really expensive retail or office space. Um, there's a, we have a small one in Conifer, Colorado. And there's a retail uh, strip center that's right across the street. I, like if I had a decent arm, which I don't, I could probably hit it with a rock from my parking lot. Uh, probably 90% of all the businesses in there have storage in ours because when you look at it, that retail, I mean, it's in Conifer. It's, a, it's probably a secondary little town um, about 30 minutes west of uh, Denver. But I bet you those retail maybe 22 $26 uh, triple net um, annually. Our storage, if you were to compare apples to apples, is probably like 13 So for instance, there's a pet store there. Well, I mean, they store the vast majority of their inventory in four 10 by 15 units. That's 600 square feet of storage that they're getting at probably 50% the cost of their retail. And when they run out of stuff, they just send an employee across the street and that employee comes over, grabs what they need and takes it back and, you know, and stocks the shelf. It, it's, it's the difference of like 10 minutes, but hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month in rent for those guys. As far as your employee questions, yeah, we do have to have employees. That, that, actual that facility itself actually doesn't have any employees. It's an unmanned facility. It's done all online and with a code to get in and out. But we do. And when you look at it, there's not very many employees. Um, those multifamily guys, like you have employees too. Like they're just called property management companies, right? And if you're managing your own, like, you know, you start to get yeah. to 50, 60, 70 units, you've got a maintenance guy and you've got a couple of property managers that are there on site. It's the exact same with us. My thing with not liking people is I don't, I, I don't want to have to deal with 50, 60, 80 tenants when I'm dealing with their homesteads, right? Yeah. If you don't pay in storage, 60 days, I auction your shit and I, like, I clear out your unit. And it's really that simple. You never make any money. Um, that storage ward shows, that's never happened. There's never a midget on some guy's shoulder wearing <laughs> nods like in the middle of the night. Right? That's not what's happening out there. In fact, all of our stuff's done online. But at the end of the day, my recapture is somewhere between 30 to 60 days. Um, hell, even in Texas, it allows you to shoot your tenants. If you, they don't pay, you can't get your unit back in 60 days. So that's, that's really why we looked at storage. It might be yeah, nice. It sounds my, all reasonable. Yeah. I, I love the idea of storage. I've been, uh, playing, playing with it, wa wanting to buy, there's two or three, uh, parks. I, I don't know if park is the right word, but facility. facility. There you go. Uh, in the near vicinity to where I live in Missouri that I've been in contact with via mail and owners for a while, just like, Hey, let me know, let me know, let me know. <laughs> so hopefully I'll be first in mind when they do. Uh, cause I walked in when I, when I had a storage unit and before I bought my first 
rental property, I remember thinking like the guy had a house on the, so it was all the, all the storage facility units and then a house. And so Mm -hmm. this older couple, retired couple, he paid them super minimum wage because they had, the house was theirs and they just had to have one of them at the desk during hours and not even at the desk in the living room or wherever, you know, and you, you ring the door and the, the little thing would open and hi, can we help you do, 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 do. And then it'd go down and they were in the house. And I was like, this is brilliant. Like, <laughs> uh, anyway, so super cool. We, we, you know, we enjoy, we don't, we don't, let's see. Yeah. We don't have any facilities where we have live on site managers and we're not a huge fan of that. Uh, Cause it makes it dicey if they don't work out. Um, mm. But there's a lot of older, like the mom and pop storages, just like what you're talking about that, that have, you know, an apartment over the office or anything else like that. And, you know, generally, as far as the the load for employees goes, it, it is pretty minimal. Um, I would just say for listeners, just just be careful on on buying storage as an active business. It's not a set it and forget it type thing, like like a single family rental. It's there's a lot more to it. You've got tenants that are moving in and out. That's you could call that that's the drawback. It's it's a double edged sword, right? We can use dynamic pricing like the airlines. Like if you go online and book a unit. It's a different price than if you show up with a wagon full of stuff that you need a unit right then and there, right? Mm. So we can do that. And we, we constantly are changing our prices depending on the amount of occupancy in a particular unit size. If we have 100 five by fives and 98 of them are occupied, those last two are going to be really expensive. Um, you know, and we can, we change our pricing per unit size. So it's not like, and it's pretty dynamic. We might have six or seven different unit sizes in some facilities you kind of got to build them with uh, the whole kind of um, schedule of unit sizes, but some unit sizes aren't going to do as well as others. Like in our more rural, the five by fives, they kind of suck. Um, so those will be cheaper per square foot than say the, the 10 by twenties or, or 10 by thirties, which in the rural areas, people like those bigger units because they're storing bigger stuff. So it really kind of gives us, a, it's a double-edged sword there that people can just pack up and leave whenever they want. It's really easy. Um, but at the same time, then you can change the, you can change the rates very, very quickly. It's good to know. So Scott, you started in 2012 uh, flipping, and now you have this really impressive, large uh, portfolio of um, self-storage. And you know, I want to ask on behalf of maybe new people who are looking to get their first single or their second single family, and they hear your story and... Well, I just want to express that, yeah, it sounds fast because we talked about it over 20 minutes, but eight years and I just want to, uh, not to take away anything from your success, but eight years of a monstrous economic run, especially mm-hmm. in real estate. And so how can you, do you have any advice that you could say, or can we, can we look back and say, uh, yeah, it, it, it's possible for the next guy um, to kind of get started in, in something yeah, you can start with a single family, you can start with a duplex, you can start with a flip and, and then still be able to grow. Um, how do I say it? Uh, it takes a lot more, it takes a lot longer than, uh, than how long it takes us to tell the story. So any hardships, any, uh, can, can we talk about how it was, uh, how do I say it? Harder than it's sounding right now. I just want to put some reality. This into is this. the worst question Alex has ever asked. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I'm, I'm picking up here. I'm picking up what you're putting down. So, you know, like there, there's that old adage that if you have one hour to chop down a tree, you better be sharpening your ax for five hours. So yeah, it sounds like, you know, it's, it sounds like we've had this like meteoric run, but really kind of going into it. Number one, I was probably 34 when we got started. Um, I had a good balance sheet. I had a decent amount of liquidity. 
I had a lot of equity in my house. Ryan was probably 30. I think he's four years younger than me. So he was probably 30. I think he turned 30 when we got the first property, right? So we weren't, we weren't 22 or something like that. Now, now there's plenty of younger guys that are going out there and getting it done. But we had, we had good balance sheets. Um, you know, we had, like, we were financially, like, squared away. We had good W-2 jobs. So for that first deal, we've never used hard money at all. That first deal, the bank gave us a loan for our first deal on that. And that was a $165,000 uh, renovation budget on an 800 square foot house. So, um, you know, we, we tore it completely down to the studs, but we were able to do that because a, I had invested in my TSP. So I was able to get $50,000 out of it. And remember that's a, that's, you can only take up to 50,000. So I had more in there than that. So I had the juice and now, now luckily I had a father-in-law and a buddy that contributed to the fight there as well. But, you know, I had some financial wherewithal and both of us that signed on the loan for the bank, we had good balance sheets so that the bank would lend us money on our first deal where we didn't have to go do four and 14. Our first loan was one point and like five and a quarter for that, for that deal. Right. So instead of giving thousands away to a hard money lender, we were able to do it through a traditional bank. Um, so I, you know, I say that as it's not, you know, I actually started this, you know, in my mid twenties by being financially squared away and not overspending myself, not buying cars and doing all that other shit. Don't get me wrong. There's, there's, there was plenty of stupid nights at the bar in Chicago when I was in my mid twenties. Don't get me wrong. We've all been there. Um, but, but overall I was pretty squared away financially by the time we started to do this. So it enabled us to do that first deal. And that first deal, we made hundreds of thousands of dollars on it. Well, then the next, like after that, the bank was like, okay, what do you need? And then we just yeah. did the next three deals. And even the, even that condo conversion, I mean, that was a, a million dollar loan that Ryan and I secured ourselves. So again, you know, we, we started out from a, a pretty decent footing on, on that as far as like getting it started and then kind of growing, we had good resumes. When you start raising money from folks, um, you know, we, we went real short on the bio, but I mean, I've got I've got a plenty, bunch of education, master's degrees, certificates, all that shit from decent universities. I've got good work experience. We've got, all of us have the military experience. That will matter. But we have good resumes. So all of that stuff and that, that whole ecosystem of really kind of squaring yourself away first before you get started, um, that's really what kind of helped us move and, and people looking at it as being like, okay, these are the type of guys we'll give money to because they've done well in other parts of their lives curious for you, and I'm going to just ask this as a super beginner, because I know you've got all kinds of information on this, but on the raising money side, which you do very well, if you were looking to get started in like raising money, because I think, I think right now with the way the market is, I mean, shoot, I'm under contract on a property right now that the bank is asking me for testicle hair follicles to see if I'm qualified. Right. And, uh, and, and my finances are wonderful for this. It's not, it's like, Hey, we've got all this wonderful lending criteria, but we took the normal like white picket fence and made it a Trump border wall to get into the actual loan. So yep. it's, it's just ridiculous barrier to entry. Um, and not even financial stuff. It's weird. But, uh, so people are starting to look at, you know, seller financing and private lending and all this stuff. So what would you say if someone was just looking like, man, I, I should look into doing some private money lending, other people's money, raising capital, what would be some beginner, uh, where, where should they start? I guess would be my, my question for you. I think they start in the, the same place. Like make sure, 
So I am an FA-30, which is an information operations officer. So in the Army, like when you get to uh, field grade 04, you can start to kind of specialize in, in something called a functional area. So I am an FA-30. And in, in that, within that realm, we have a term called information fratricide. So what you don't want to do is put out mixed messaging, right? So when I say that is everything that you put out should tell the exact same story. There shouldn't be, like if you are going to use statistics to make yourself look awesome, like we do, make sure that the statistics on your website versus your one pager aren't different. Because I'll tell you that if I'm an investor and I, and I pick up a one pager and I go and I go to your website and it says you've done 10 deals on your, on your one pager and your website says six, um, I'm going to start to think like, whoa, man, like this guy doesn't care enough to make sure that he's putting out the same message. Make sure your LinkedIn profile isn't a hot mess. You know, so often, in like, say again. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> yeah, so like, don't take your own picture. Like, none of us look good when we do it ourselves. It just doesn't. <laughs> so, yeah, don't. Like, get a professional picture up there, right? You want to put your best foot forward because, you know, as human beings, like, we can see all the data in the world. But, man, if somebody just doesn't get a good feeling for me, they're not going to write you a check. And it doesn't matter if it's equity or debt. Banks look at your stuff too. I see our lenders looking at my LinkedIn all the time. So really just make sure, like take a month and get all your stuff squared away and make sure anything that's out there facing against, like, uh, against the world that has your name on it is uniform across, the, uh, across the, the board. And if there's a problem, it's not a bad thing, man. I mean, maybe, maybe you, I don't know, did something stupid in your youth or something like that. Like if, if, if you can find it, you should find it and be aware of it and don't let somebody else, don't let some investor find it. Like make sure it's there. And if, if you made a mistake early on, it's not, it's not the kiss of death. Just address it, own it and drive on. Don't let people find it without um, letting them know. Yeah. So I think it's interesting. I worked in bank underwriting for quite a while and, uh, and, and I've raised some money and the, the so kind of I'm on both sides of that in a way. And it's interesting, I think kind of what you're saying, or if I could summarize it or say it in a different way is, uh, people are looking to invest in you um, more than anything. And so in fact, one of the five C's of credit, the first one is character, right? Like who yep. are, the bank, yeah, they're gonna go through the financials, but they really wanna know that you can pull this off and that you're gonna be good to deal with and that uh, you're gonna be a, you are gonna be a good investment. And so they're gonna Google you and they're gonna go through this, these, these, this is part of the underwriting. To, and, and your private investors are gonna be the same way who's David, you know, what's he about, blah, 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 blah. And so, yeah, I really like that you say that. Uh, make sure you look good. Make sure you have your stuff together. And some of it, you know, it's kind of like, if you care, it will show kind of thing. When I was so one of the, the presentation I've given up um, at the event that, in, that was supposed to be in St. Louis, whose name I forgot, it's with Stu and those, all, all those other guys, um, and Bill Allen that's hosting. I'm, I'm giving actually a uh, a talk on doing due diligence on the sponsor for a deal because, you know, I argue that the, the deal, it matters 20%, 80% is the sponsor because a good sponsor can turn around kind of a bad deal and a bad sponsor can screw up a good deal. And I'll give you an example. We've got, <laughs> we've got some RV parks in the Permian Basin in Texan oil company. Needless to say, today is not a good day uh, in, in our world for the RV parks out there in the oil country. For, for this those is listening, this is April 20th, which is when oil prices tanked to like 
shoot, I don't know, like 99% for the last year. It's at negative $30 a barrel. At least it yeah. was when we started. And it's yet now, my oil stock still hasn't dropped below where I sold it last week. I don't who we've we've got to run. It's now negative $26, down 243% since this morning. So we're 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 doing better than we were when we started. So um when I was a recruiter, they always told someone told me, and it was what stuck with me the entire time I was a recruiter was if they like you, they'll join. Like forget all the other all the other recruiting stuff. If they like you as a person, they trust you and they believe in you. Then they'll then they'll join, and I think we we I have investors that that sign the paperwork within minutes of getting it. There's zero there's zero chance, which is which which actually concerns us a little bit. <laughs> there's zero chance that they looked at any of the information. Why? Because they're like, listen, guys, we we know who we know the types of deals that you're putting out. We know your character. We know your integrity. We know your values. So we're just going to sprinkle fifty thousand dollars on every deal that comes out. So just send us the paperwork, and they just sign it and send it right back. See, yeah. So that's, I literally wrote down, if they like you, they'll join slash invest. (laughs) So I just took the same. It's exactly what it is. And it's what, you know, if any, if anybody's on the call, that's looking to be a passive investor in deals and they don't want to do their own deals, but they, maybe they're, maybe they're in retirement or whatever, and they've got money to put with another, um, you know, put with a sponsor on, on whatever they want to do it, man. Like, so, so many folks get enamored with the financials and they forget that it, all that's fooey just, like ghost math, right? Like we can make a, we can make a spreadsheet dance across the screen. That doesn't mean that it's going to be good. Right. So at the end of the day, it matters on the sponsor because the operating environment, like right now, (laughs) bad sponsors are going to lose their deals because they haven't set it up correctly or they don't know what to do, or they don't have the team or the planning wherewithal to get through a problem like this. Yeah. Those RV parks that we have are in the suck right now, but one of them was bought with no debt, zero. There's no overhead. Who gives a shit? Like, I mean, it sucks. We're not going to make returns and that's bad, but investors aren't going to lose their money, at least not today. Um, I mean, if oil stays like this for the next 10 years, we could have a problem. But, you know, I mean, right now that park, I mean, we can take it down to almost nothing where there's no operating costs to it. The other one, the other one's at 50% debt. We can have 23% occupancy at an 80% reduction in the rents that we had when we were running that bolt and we're still fine. It'll be, it, it'll suck. It'll be miserable, but we won't lose the asset. That's about don't lose the asset. I'm about to go. First rule is preservation of capital. I'm about to go take myself a trip up to Vegas this weekend and ask the gas station to pay me so that I can use their gas. Yeah, exactly. Like, Hey, uh, don't, don't you owe me a dollar 50 a gallon for this? Yeah. I mean, it's it, like, this is nuts. This is absolutely crazy. We did, we did some, so we used the military decision-making process inside of our company, the army version of it. And I've, my wife worked for um, SOCOM for a while as a DA civilian. So we, we've taught the rest of the company, MDMP, as it's called in the army side of the house. Um, and we use it to build courses of action for each one of our deals. And man, I'll tell you what, this one didn't make it. Even the most dangerous, like, so there's most probable and most dangerous course of action for the properties. And we went pretty bad with these oil properties when we, when we looked at the most dangerous course of action. What didn't come out with was a global pandemic in which people couldn't give oil away. That one didn't come out. <laughs> so that just goes to justify the old adage that just because the worst risk behind you is something you can survive doesn't mean that you know necessarily what the worst risk possible is. hundred percent. All right. So I got a few questions I always ask. The first is if, uh, 
E1, E2, you know, youngster was to walk up to you asking for life advice or real estate advice, what, what would you tell them was like your, I don't know, key to success, the fairy dust? Yeah. So there's a, there's kind of a, a thought out there on the, the, the ready fire aim. I would tell them that that's stupid. Um, none of us would do that, right? That's not what you do. But you also shouldn't be sitting there trying to focus on the target so long that your eyes get tired and your breathing gets labored and then you miss your target. So, you know, really what I say on, on that is spend a little time educating yourself, go to bigger pockets, figure out what podcasts you like, and then take podcasts and books and then take 90 days and educate yourself as much as you can in those 90 days and really get after it. That's what we did when we decided to pivot to storage. We shut the company down and everybody read everything we could. We listened to podcasts. We watched YouTube videos. We did everything we could for 90 days. You'd be amazed at how much you can learn in 90 days if you really focus on it. And then at the end of the 90 days, give yourself another goal to do your first deal within 30 to 60 days after that. That's what we did. And we had our first uh, raw land development for storage 26 days after that ended. Wow. Yeah. Commit to education. And then I like that because I, <clears throat> it, it is a delicate balance between analysis paralysis and, Hey, look, you're never going to be ready. You got to do it sometime. Yep. So yeah, I like that. 90 days, hardcore, turn everything off, hardcore education. There's an old saying that I like, if you read three books, you know more about the topic than 99% of the people. Literally, when we bought a car wash, there were three books available. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> that was three books, total of 226 pages between the three books. It didn't take very long. And, and both and two thirds of them were saying, hey, here's five pages. Uh, sign up for our email list. That's right. Two thirds of them had pictures in it. So <laughs> perfect for some, you, some, Scott, right? some guy out there. <laughs> That's the whole adage. Like none of us would go to the range without going through basic rifle marksmanship first, right? Because then you, like, you would go out there and you'd just waste all your ammo. You would never hit it. But you don't want to go through advanced sniper school before you get out on the range the first time either. Yeah. Yeah. And it's timed for a reason. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I like that actionable window. That's good. All right. What, uh, what resources, uh, book, course, website, whatever, would you recommend for anyone looking to get started in real estate? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, I, I would split it up between uh, books and podcasts. You know, podcasts, I, I like the Real Estate Radio Guys is a really good one. Um, Kathy Fatke's uh, Real Estate News for or, or Real Estate Investing. I, I can never remember the titles of them. Um, Kevin Bupp has a really good one, Investing for Cashflow. Um, Kevin's a good friend of mine. His, his is really good. Um, and then Joe Fairless is, is, is kind of the quintessential one. And, and the bigger pockets one, um, uh, great information there. I, I would say that that would be, you know, for people just starting the bigger pockets forum is probably a good launch pad to get in there and read different forums. Cause there's a, there's a lot of different stuff on there and, and listening to the podcast, reading some of those books. Um, and then really just kind of determining what's the best for you. I think before you get started, um, you know, after the education side of the house, that'll give you kind of the idea of what, what is right for you. Don't just jump into multifamily because that's what's all the rage right now. If you, if you want to be a multifamily investor, then do it. But don't be afraid to say that like, you know, that's not really for me. I want to invest in dog boarding companies. Okay, that's fine. There's probably people making out a bunch of money on, on dog boarding candles. They're so hot right now. Actually. Holy shit. I pay $51 a night for three, like each for three dogs. 
Like, <laughs> holy shit. I go, like, the first time I went there, they're like, oh, that'll be $750. I'm like, I went for a weekend. Holy crap, that's yeah. more than I paid for me. You say they're so hot right now. You might have meant, like, last month. I feel yeah. like since everyone's sitting at home with their dog, they're probably struggling. I mean, right in now. general, but they, yeah, that, that I is not, I, I, know, I don't know if you're making a joke or not, but that's a real business model and it is really growing. Yeah. A hundred percent. And like, and that's why I like, um, I, I'm during my master's work. I, we did a project on doing a dog boarding kennel right at the air, airport. And, um, there's boarding gate kennels right by DIA, right by the, the airport in Denver. And I was like, oh, Holy wow. God, that's it. I had that. I mean, um, it makes but, sense. But, it's really, it's about understanding who you are. What, what do you value? What are your, what are your values? What are your skill sets at? Um, don't try to manage projects. If you're not disciplined and detail oriented, you will lose a lot of money. Um, um, but then, you know, don't, don't be out there trying to sell if you don't have that personality, right? So know your strengths and weaknesses and then apply them to whatever asset class you think would be the best for you. And that, that'll come through learning. Absolutely. And my final question is, where can people get a hold of you? www.spartan-investors.com or they can just email me at scott at spartan-investors.com. Scott, I am so mad that we didn't hang out in Denver. Yes. I mean like the, the best ever we, so, so Ben Lapidus is my director of acquisitions in finance. No way. Yeah. He works for Spartan. That's how I know the name. As soon as you came on here, I was like, Spartan Invest, I know that name. Uh, I hung out with Ben at FinCon in, last year. Uh, we hung out quite a bit. Oh, is, uh, he, is he the guy who gave you your money back after you whined to a bunch of people? That's not what happened. I'm not getting into it right now. And no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Ben's good. Ben's good people. Oh, yep. man. Scott, thanks for joining us today. No, thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode about my journey from military to millionaire. If you liked it, be sure to visit from militarymillionaire.com slash podcast to subscribe to future podcasts. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate the show. Give us a review on iTunes. Now get out there and take action.